0: This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a project funded by the Henry Luce Foundation and the E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Foundation, and hosted by Northeastern University. Sacred Rights is a project that supports public scholarship on religion and provides resources and networks for scholars of religion committed to translating the significance of their research to a broader audience. I recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website at sacred rights.org or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. And this is a podcast where, since 2017, I discuss all things religion with a variety of fantastic scholars, experts, authors, and educators. On this episode, I speak with Dr. Sarah Mosliner. Sarah Mosliner is a lecturer in the Department of Philosophy, Anthropology, and Religion at Central Michigan University, where she teaches courses on the history of religious and racial discrimination in the United States. She has been studying evangelical purity culture and has numerous publications, including the book Virgin Nation, Sexual Purity, and American Adolescence from Oxford University Press. She has appeared on numerous podcasts and is a regular contributor to the podcast Straight White American Jesus. This is a really fun and wide ranging conversation with a little bit of everything from discussions on the book Virgin Nation to Dr. Mosliner's work with the After Purity Project. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Dr. Sarah Mosliner, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am so happy to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. As am I. I am so happy that you're here too. And uh, I'm wondering if you can just spend a minute and introduce yourself a little bit to the audience and the listeners out there so they know a little bit about who you are and what you do.
2: My day job, I guess you could say, is I am a lecturer in the Department of Philosophy, Anthropology, and Religion at Central Michigan University, which is in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, which is also the home of the Saginaw Chippewa Indian tribe and the ancestral home of the Anishinaabek people. One of the things we do at CMU is... Um, we always include a um, a land acknowledgement because we have a relationship with the local tribe, and you know, and we are on their land, and and we, and this is controversial and something I talk about every semester, but our, uh, since the 1940s, we have been the Chippewas. And so that creates an opening for us to have that conversation. What does that mean? What is this history, right? What does it mean that it was used for decades without permission and so on and so forth. So, so yeah, so that is where I am from geographically. Um, I am also, uh, I call myself the director of the After Purity Project, which just makes it sound much more fancy, but um, it's really been my research project for the last several years, where I've been interviewing people who have um, grown up and out of evangelical purity culture. Uh, and this work has introduced me to topics I never, Imagined um, I would uh, be spending time with, and that is topics like um, religious trauma, uh, sexual abuse, and and sort of all of the emotional and uh, psychological labor um, that people have to go through when they leave a sort of a very conservative, tight knit religious community. So that's so that's where my brain lives.
0: <laughs> I love it. Well, I want to know a little bit about your pathway into mm-hmm. your current work. Uh, you have a pretty interesting bio. I was on your website and reading about you on the Sacred Rights website as well. And I want to know a little bit about your backstory to like kind of set the stage for where your scholarship is today. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a, a title on your website that really grabbed my attention called from from pure adolescence to promiscuous scholarship so i'm i'm wondering if you can just tell me a little bit about your pathway maybe from like your youth and then into some important uh, academic you know turning points within your journey
2: yeah Okay, so to start from the beginning, I was raised in um, white evangelicalism, a very Calvinist form in the Midwest and Western Pennsylvania. Um, So very, uh, so much more intellectual and less populist form of evangelicalism, right? Today, I think much of what we see in evangelicalism is very populist, right? Mine was a little more subdued, Um, But there was also this notion that education and thinking about, even about, especially about your faith, right, that that was part of being a Christian. So I didn't grow up with a lot of anti-intellectualism that you, that I have heard from a lot of other people who were raised evangelical. And I think that for me, right, in many ways that saved me from a lot because it gave me a place to go when I needed to go. But, you know, as a teenager, I was, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, I was very kind of caught up in um, sort of the What felt to me like the growing vitality of evangelicalism, my high school, my Christian school was very much part of the pro-life movement. We went to the March for Life every year as a school trip my senior year. I organized that trip. Also, my senior year, I wrote a letter to the editor in response to a a news story about teaching abstinence-only education. And there were sex educators in the public schools arguing that, oh, you can't teach abstinence-only education. That's just impractical and so on and so forth. And I, I took great umbrage. Yeah. And said, it is practical because many of us are. So I I basically said in an article, you know, in this letter to the editor that I am not, you know, I am a teenager that is not having sex. And that's because I'm a Christian. And maybe you all should think about that too. Right. Mm -hmm. So it
1: was very,
2: very haughty, very whatever. Well, I had no memory of that letter until after i published my first book mm. on evangelical purity culture and it was like the summer of that book came out 2015 that i was like that i said to myself yeah i wonder if i could find that letter online somewhere and lo and behold i did and wow. I, think, I think that's on my website
0: you can it see is, It is i read it yeah yes
2: right so that yeah, is Yeah i read it Yeah. so you can go to saramossliner.com and read read this letter that i wrote and i was just like So I think I, yeah. And it's really interesting that I just, I really had a block around it, you know, in terms of a memory. Um, And then, you know, I went to college. I went to uh, what was then at the time Calvin College, which for me was sort of a huge, it was a, it was from where I was coming from, was a very kind of big leap into this bigger, more exciting world. I studied theater as an undergrad, and that I did theater in college like that was my life. And and also, I think right, it saved me as well, you mm. know, from the more hardened parts of evangelicalism and really how it kind of challenged my habits of thinking in instructive ways that I think made made me a better thinker and just a better person. My senior year of college, I was, so I had been, I was, I was doing theater tech, right? turned out I did not have the acting skills I thought I did, (laughs) but I, but I was really good at doing backstage stuff. I did a lot of stage management. I think my work was well-respected and, and that is, you know, and I eventually moved to Chicago in hopes of pursuing that. Um, But before that, I was uh, one of my professors contacted me and said, oh, a a local church is having an event. They need someone to help them with some technical stuff. Turned out they didn't, but whatever, Um, because I just sat there the whole time. But they were offering me $100. And I was like, I'll do it. So I go. And I was at Calvary Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, which is still there. And so I went and I watched this event, um, that turned out to be a true love waits event. And this was in 1995 <laughs> and the difference between me at 17 writing that letter and me sitting in that church, watching this event that was like one part rock concert, one part, you know, altar call, you know, one part like intense sexual shame and fear, mm. um, I, I was just like, what, what is this?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, and that state and that stayed with me for a really long time. And I think was one of the reasons that, and being introduced to this thing called feminist theology made me be like, this is where I need to get answers to these questions. And, and so that's where I, um, And from there, I went to seminary, um, got a master's degree focusing on feminist and other liberation theologies, um, and then went on to get my PhD, having shifted my focus to the history of evangelicalism with an emphasis Mm. on gender, sexuality, and race. Um, So by the time I get to really doing um, my research on purity culture, right, it was before we called it that. I can't claim responsibility for uh, it was uh, Donna Freitas who coined the term evangelical purity culture. I, uh, I think I called it um, the faith-based abstinence movement in my uh, in my earlier work. But by that time, I had such different experiences and perspectives on it. Um, right. So I went from being this very, like, self-righteous teenager to being a very horrified college student mm. <laughs> to being to wanting to be an academic to say, OK, how do I what are the tools I need to really make sense of of, of what this is? And at that time, so this was 2006 is when I started my dissertation there was no one, there were no public voices pushing back on purity culture. Um, And at that point, I just wanted to understand it. Right. And I wasn't even looking for opposition. I was looking, what does this mean to the people who participate in it? What, how can we make sense of this sort of using all the fancy stuff that we have in religious studies, right. All the theories that we have, like, like what is really going on here? Um, And, and it, And later on, when the dissertation became a book, I realized that there was an argument about nationalism that that I had not seen doing my dissertation work. And so it was not just about, you know, (laughs) horny teenagers in the Mm backseat, right? That this was a movement that was intentionally political, um, in order to allow um, white evangelicals to increase their um, their political power and social influence. And, you know, and part of this larger, you know, conglomerate of um, of policies and beliefs around sex, mm-hmm. right? So it is sort of I I keep wanting to co-opt the term seamless garment from the Catholic Church, which doesn't, and I, I'm not totally comfortable with that because I think there there is some value and virtue in the seamless garment argument because it's like we are, like, consistency is really important, but, but that's kind of, right, it's, it's sort of this whole conglomeration of, uh, responses to changes in gender roles, changes in, um, norms around sexuality, and, um, and so, so, so purity culture becomes, It is just another piece of that. Um, I was last week, I was at the uh, two weeks ago, I was at the um, at the University of Chicago Div School at a conference on religion and and, uh, reproductive rights. And the person who and this is a topic I I have a lot of blockages around because of, you know, it's 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 a topic in my family that is yeah that's 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 really very difficult and And since the overturn of Roe v Wade, I've sort of been like you know, kind of walking through or just feeling like I'm just kind of in a daze and mm-hmm. trying to and and so much has been sort of opening up in me in terms of understanding kind of this on both a personal level, but on an intellectual. And and you'll find, as you listen to me talk, like I've, I'm increasingly unable, especially in a post-Roe world and a post-purity world to, uh, to divorce the personal from the intellectual for myself. Mm -hmm. And I've decided I'm not going to apologize for that anymore. Mm -hmm. So, so yes. So, right. So thinking about, you know, how the rhetoric of the pro-life movement is very much the rhetoric of you know this abs this abstinence-only purity culture stuff. And and it's it they play the same role in US politics. And now I think we see very clearly, right, that this has been intentional, right? Purity culture is a way to socialize young people into an understanding of what their future families should look like and that they should desire to have those particular families. Right. And those people who are teaching this are also, also make the argument very successfully that, you know, the strength of the U S nation state is in our white Christian families. Mm. And so that, uh, and, you know and so it's a real kind of ruse i think that's been perpetrated not that a white christian family in and of itself is a problem but it's the symbol right of of american goodness yeah um, and it does a lot of things including you know performing things like sexual like it it creates sort of a veil of um sexual innocence Right. Or maybe I don't know, maybe a screen is a better metaphor, right? The white Christian family is sort of this screen that you can project onto it things like sexual innocence and racial innocence. Um, and that then is that then is promoted as sort of as a national identity, right? Gotcha. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, and I know that you're you. You mentioned your book a couple times, which came out in 2015: Virgin Nation, Sexual Purity, and American Adolescence. What did you like about that process of um, adapting the dissertation into a book, and then seeing that come into the world?
2: Yeah, I think you know I had a great advisor who taught me to think about finding a through line, and I really struggled with that with uh, my dissertation, and I think in part because no one had written on, right, I was writing on a topic that no one had written on academically, Um, there was one person, and her book came out in uh, 2011, I believe, um, which is very, which is good, it's called Making Chastity Sexy, and and she was a professor at Wheaton at the time, Um, so for anyone who likes to you know, scratch down a bibliography during podcast interview, um, (laughs) Christine's book, right? So hers was the first to come out. And so, and you always learn like, oh, there's going to be other people studying what you study, you know, but I didn't have like a corpus of work to go to and say, oh, what's my contribution going to be? What's my unique? And so I really didn't know how to do the work of, okay, well, why is this important, Right. Aside from understanding maybe a certain experience of adolescent spirituality, like what else matters here? And so when I was, um, I don't remember when this was, but I was looking back over my interview transcript with the uh, president, the founder and CEO or whatever of straight of a uh, straight of American Jesus. That's funny. Of Silver Ring Thing, which was one of the groups I studied. And uh, in part because they're out of Pittsburgh, which is where I'm from. And so I had some connections, but they were also like true love weights. They had a national campaign. Um and in my interview with uh his name was Denny Patton, uh him, he talked about you know holding a belief that um that the end of the world is coming, that the United States is in a final stage of civilizational rise and decline that has been demonstrated in other historical contexts uh, especially um, the fall of Rome, and that that the United States was sort of in st- a state of decay, and that eventually, it will mean the end, right? So his primary, so, and all this to say, like his primary concern was for saving kids, right? And that the the purity, the, you know, or the abstinence stuff was, you know, was sort of the means to do that. And so I had, you know, so I was, of course, very familiar with all the different pre and post-millennial theologies, but this was the first time I had heard, Heard it directly connected to uh to purity or to abstinence. And I was like, okay, this is what we need to dig into. And so I started going back, just I started working backwards to see where there were arguments about sexual immorality directly connected to the decline of the nation state. And I knew that was available, as many people do, in rhetoric around. Um, you know, in the 1970s, we would have said homosexuality, right? That was, um, but I was more interested in uh, in this con- in sexual purity. Um, and so I looked to see where people were sort of connecting sexual purity um, and which specifically referred to uh, not having sex outside of marriage, right? And that That sex was about family building and family building is about nation building, right? In this worldview. So I found that all over James Dobson. I found that all over Billy Graham. And I found it all over first wave feminism. Hmm. And so, um, and so that was my through line, right? Yeah. These are the places where we see this rhetoric showing up and so I'm very interested in the work that rhetoric does and so that's what I uh, that's what I wrote about for Virgin Nation to really show that this was a um, that sexual purity was a concept that that was created in the 19th century as part of Um, white Protestant gender roles for the purpose of creating a certain kind of nation state
1: Mm.
2: to use that lens, to think about the movement, the contemporary movement, is something I I wanted to help people develop that and just be like, use this lens when you are looking at what's happening now. Gotcha. Yeah. And so what was really incredible, you know, cause you write a book, I, And there was, when I was writing the book, I didn't have a job. Mm. And I thought this may be my only contribution as an academic. And maybe I need to be okay with that. It was incredibly, it was one of the most difficult things um, realizing because I graduated in 2009 when the economy was. And so I, and there are still people like who graduated at the same time. Like there's a certain generation of us who just never got tenure track jobs because our, Right, our our window was destroyed. Yeah, and and the window was already really narrow.
0: Right, that's why I didn't finish my PhD. I stopped for comps because I was looking ahead at the prospective uh, opportunities for me in the future, and I didn't see anything good, so I stopped.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I've known people who do that too. And I'm always like, that was a good, but yeah. But I also know I couldn't have stopped. Like I was Mm -hmm. like, "Mm -mm," no one could have said to me. And of course we, you know, there was no way of knowing. Um, and I had, I knew nothing. I knew nothing about the job market. I knew nothing about, I just had questions I wanted to answer. It yeah. was that simple. Right. I mean, I guess, you know, I guess that betrays a certain amount of of privilege or I don't know what. Right. It was never about economics because I was like, this is the mo-. I'm like, I will be paying off loans for the rest of my life. And if I'm OK with that, then I can do this. Right. Yeah. And I was. And I was. What, But what was really fascinating is so, you know, so I wrote this book as an academic contribution and just I wanted it it to be respected I didn't expect a lot of attention and then when it got attention you know people writing reviews and 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 people reading it who were not academics and writing about it and writing to me and saying hey we run a um you know we're mental health professionals we have a library for people working through all this stuff um we wondering. Do you think your book would be an appropriate edition? And you know, and so, the, but this idea that an academic book is going to be helpful for people working through what now I would call religious trauma. Right. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that language at the time, and and when that and and when that happened, like that summer, I was like, if I ever do anything else, it's going to be public facing work because there is a public out there who needs. Uh, Who needs to be heard and who needs to be um, and who needs resources for making sense of their experiences.
0: Amazing. Well, and you're still doing that. You're contributing to the field like you're doing public facing work. I know that you work with Straight White American Jesus podcast, which is a wonderful, fantastic podcast. And there's also uh, a recent piece of scholarship that you put out with the revealer titled White Women's Bodies and the Dilemma of Purity Culture Recovery, emphasizing the recovery aspect, which I found really fascinating. And you kind of already went over some of the main turning points and details and the history behind all of it. And, you know, I want to dive into this article a little bit. And something that I was wondering is like the promises that are made to draw youth in the US to purity culture. Can you give me a little overview about like what is said and done to draw youth's attention towards purity culture in the US like today? What's going on to like keep youth engaged in this movement?
2: Yeah, so I was just talking uh to my sister this weekend and she reminded me of um Irma Kim Hackett who is a um I believe she's a clergy person who's also a writer but she wrote um she named it Disney Princess Theology. Mm. And um and she wrote about it not just as sort of the work of romance of sort of sanctifying romance the promises of purity culture are that you can and should prepare yourself for Christian marriage. Um, But there isn't, it's but there isn't necess- and so they've created a set of rituals um around this idea and the you know the first being you know sort of a purity ring ceremony where you make a commitment to god to or to your parents right depends on the context um that you will not um have sex until marriage or you will maintain sexual purity i think there's a prefer- like the term sexual purity became preferred because it's so, it's so bendy, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. It can mean, it means more than simply, right? You cannot, um, have sexual intercourse because they, they discovered that if they focused on sexual, and this is, this is true. This came out in my interviews. Uh, they found that if they only focused on this thing called sexual abstinence, <laughs> that, that people were like finding loopholes, <laughs> and, um, and doing things and claiming they were still maintaining, right, their purity or whatever. So they changed it to, um, so they changed it to sexual purity. You know, and one person I talked to who worked for True Love Weight, she was like, you know, we don't have to work at all to get girls to come and join into this, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's, it works so well already with sort of the the sort of misogynistic romanticization, right, of life and saying, um, you know, like, hey, this is everything, you know, and really kind of couches uh, marriage as like a form of salvation, right. And right, which is part of, you know, which is sort of how fairy tale narratives work, right? The happily ever after, and sort of, and is very explicit in putting that forward. Um, and so, so they can, so they're as evangelicals have done forever, right? Using elements of popular culture, um, things that are already very powerful uh, narratives and symbols and then sort of, um, framing it as, um, you know, as, as part of one's spiritual development, taking a purity pledge was, was very much part of the sort of the spiritual journey of adolescence, right. Toward marriage, right. That marriage was, was the apotheosis of adolescence, right. So that is right. So that was the promise.
1: Mm -hmm. And,
2: um, that, Hey, you know, if you do all these things, right. And very, right. If you keep yourself as pure as possible and you get married, like you are, you know, you're going to be blessed with a marriage that's free of emotional strife. You are going to, um, you're going to have mind blowing sex. Like this was also, you know, this is why uh, Christine Gardner's book was called making chastity sexy. Cause mm-hmm. it really is. I mean, they're using, they did, and they sort of use the promise of good sex to say, wait, to have it, you know? And I think because evangelicals, you know, have become very self-conscious about being perceived as being sex negative. I mean, since the 1970s, there have been, you know, marriage manuals for ex for evangelicals who are, you know, which are really fascinating uh, to read and think about. So you know, this. So I think in in many cases it was an easy sell, but what happened is that then not being sexually active became an even more an an outsized component. Of Christian spirituality, and I knew that pretty pretty early on in my research. I was like, so you know, the whole sort of center to saved narrative of evangelical Christianity has become part of. Is this, you know, is sort of the purity narrative? So it's so it's had so it had sort of the thr- the the thrall of romantic. Uh, passion and excitement and anticipation, right? But also the thrall of of um, you know of evangelical, of of spiritual salvation, right? And like that's such a right that's such a powerful thing, and just sort of in terms of its affective, you know, weight. Um, and yeah, it just in the nineties and two uh, thousands just you know, kind of grew into a cultural force.
0: You know, there's a, the article is really interesting in the fact that it talks about backlashes to purity movement. And there is like this sort of network, it feels like of like former evangelicals that have, you know, begun speaking out very forcefully, making their own podcasts about, you know, ex evangelical, uh, you know, outreach um writers and there's a lot of uh you know social media campaigns on large platforms by ex evangelicals tell me a little bit about the backlash to purity culture that you're noticing
2: yeah yeah so it's really fascinating but i you know it wasn't until so my book came out in 2015 and so i have been trying to, to what i've been doing um, I think since twenty, I'd say twenty thirteen, is tracing the backlash mm-hmm. and seeing where it's coming from. And one of the more prominent people for this group we now call Exvangelicals to start this, um, uh, well, two of them were Rachel Hell Evans. Um, and if your listeners know who she is, right, her the anniversary of her death just passed. She's so- an amazing. Yeah, yeah. So both her and Sarah Bessie um, and people like Elizabeth Esther, right? um, These white evangelical women who were sort of on the border of it and raising questions like coming from a feminist perspective. Uh, But before that, there were Black women like uh, Dr. Brittany Cooper, who grew up um, in a white Southern Baptist context and in Mississippi and who also was totally pulled into True Love Weights because she saw that's what um, that's what the white girls were doing. And she was very, um, she knew she wanted to graduate high school. She wanted to go to college and to graduate school. Like she knew she was an intellectual at a very young age and she wanted to make sure she had every opportunity. And so when she saw that this purity thing, was something that the white girls in her school were doing. she was like, yep, yeah, that's me, I'm gonna do that. I'm just gonna you know forget about all this other stuff and, and actually and she has a gorgeous essay called Grown Woman Theology where in the midst of this her grandmother sits her down and is like, let me tell you a couple things, right And so I think that, um, and so that conversation was happening even before white ex-evangelicals were, Uh, Or talking or having this conversation, but what really kind of got things into the public was not an an evangelical, um, but a young Mormon woman named Elizabeth Smart, um, who people will recall she was the the 13 year old who was abducted in Salt Lake City, Utah, by a self proclaimed Mormon prophet. she was. uh, she was held captive for nine months. She was raped, um, and in 2013, she talked about. Uh, she now runs uh, an organization um, uh, advocating for people who've uh, who come out of sex trafficking, right? Helping people work through those experiences. But she she said that when she was being held captive. She remembered what she learned in her church about sex. And that is when you have sex before you're married, you're like a chewed-up piece of gum. Mm. And, and if you which and no one wants a chewed up piece of gum. So this was her response after she was assaulted. Right. And she said, you know, this is one of the reasons why I didn't really make an effort to escape. Cause she really felt like the value of her life held nothing. Right. You know, and she's right. And she is a good Mormon woman, right? She is still. And, but when she said that, um, evangelicals were like, Like it just sort of hit the evangelical consciousness and especially people on the edges of it. So people like Rachel and Sarah and Elizabeth Esther were like, oh, yep. (laughs) And so that's really when the conversation got started. Um, But since then, it has been a never ending like flood. Like I just stop being able to keep up there was a time yeah. trying to like um like download and organize any blog post article or whatever um but it just became so much and I was like I don't know what to do <laughs> um um and this was and so it wouldn't be so So, right. So in 2016 is, I think, when the nomenclature of Exvangelical evangelical gets introduced. Right. And right away, I was asking people um, like Chrissy Stroop and like Chastain, like, hey. You know, my hunch is that this is, you know, a pretty like, you know, like uh, the overlap here in the Venn diagram is almost exact in terms of people talking about Problems with purity culture and and this evangelical thing, and that's right, and that's certainly what has what has borne out in my research, right? Um, um, and so part of my research is thinking about um, this thing called that, that we're calling the, the group we're calling evangelicals, who they are you know, why people leave, what, what happens after that, you know, and, and sort of the kinds of things that people have to sort through. Um, and so, right. So you have, so I sort of think of like, you know, evangelicalism as this big, big umbrella, and then there's all these little things and purity culture is a big part of that. You know, it's sort of the rain hat that you wear under the umbrella, I guess.
0: Yeah. (laughs) You know, Another aspect that I am uh, that I think is under-discussed with regards to purity culture is the racism aspect, which I think that your article does a really good job of shining a light on, because I had never really put that together myself. Whenever I've read about purity culture and ex-evangelical movements, I never thought really about racism. So there's this aspect where like, the white Protestant women are sort of put on a sexually pure pedestal as models of piety and the inherent racism in that. And it was called out by like Sojourner Truth and others in your article, which I thought was really interesting. Tell me a little bit more about the racism and white supremacy aspect and how it's disguised as Christian virtue. Cause I thought that was so fascinating.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right. And again, this, right. And this is an an argument you can take back to the 19th century. um, And, and the way that, you know, um, the uh the gendered i the ideal this notion of ideal womanhood was established um, as a racial ideal and one that only white women could access or claim as their own right now of course ideals are never reflections of what is real um and and of course this was at a time when there needed to be a sense of, um, you know, cause even in the North, um, you know, where you're going to have an abolitionist movement, um, there were a lot of white people who were not abolitionists and needed to, um, somehow, uh, make slavery palatable, Right. Whereas in the South, you have people who are just all out ready to fight for it. Right. And one of the ways of making it palatable was to um, uh, to idealize white womanhood as being valuable to uh, to the nation. Right. And there was a lot of sort of nationalistic imagery and and narration around the role of white womanhood that basically said so. If in contemporary purity culture, we talk about the white American family, right? The white evangelical family in the 19th century, it was white women, okay? who so playing the same role, um, but this is the emphasis. Because again, white women were then perceived as playing a role in nation building, right? Um, when in fact, the nation was being built by people whose bodies were being exploited right? And so, um, so we need to sort of think about the context in which these ideals around womanhood were developed and they were developed to counterbalance, um, the cruelty of slavery, right? And to sort of provide like a, you know, again, like a screen, right? You know, here's a screen that we can project anything we want to, and don't look over here, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? Oh, and look at these white women who are doing this, right? And, um, they were doing these things. And so, so the connection, so sexual purity was always developed to, um, uh, to be something that could be ascribed to white women, right. And, and so I sort of think about white womanhood as being a set of benefits, a set of uh, a set of risks, a set of constraints, Um, that white women can enter into whenever they want, if they, um, if they need to assert their authority. Gotcha. And so white women, this is how white women then perform, uh, can perform racial power. Um, And, and over the last few years, we've seen sort of some epic examples of that. And and this goes back to the idea of connecting sexual purity to white womanhood, because sexual purity means um, that you are morally above reproach, right? Um, and so I think that if we understand white racial identity is something we are socialized into, right? Our gender identities are things we are socialized into, then this is one of the ways that white girls are socialized, right? Um, and, uh or or can be socialized. Um, and so so that is the through line I am currently trying to trace, right and thinking about um and that the next step in that through line is um is racial terror lynchings. And this is again where we see the prominence of white women's sexual purity right that needs to be defended at all costs and it was right it and it became it was part of what Ida B Wells called the threadbare lie right that you have these sexually pure and vulnerable white women and these dangerous black men right who are bent on um uh att- you know uh, attacking white women and um and that was the vast majority of the reason why lynchings happened. Right. And, um, why black men were lynched, right. It was, you know, which was the largest number of people who, um, experienced that. Um, and there's right. And that's a whole, right. So so that's a whole chapter of my next book. Right. Nice. Piecing this apart as, you know, so, um, so, yeah, so the article I wrote for The Revealer was trying to think about, you know, how does white womanhood show up in what I call this post-purity moment, right? And, and um and the thing is, like, you know, second wave feminism is the idea that, you know, women are individuals who are distinctly different from men, have a unique set of needs, but who have been overlooked, um, and, and many other things, right? Who deserve equality. Um, but it it never offered a really good way of thinking about um racial identity. And so we know from the history of second wave feminism that. A lot of women, um, including women of color and um, and queer women, were not really part of the set. You know, did not feel like they could be a part of it, right? Um, and so, a lot of the post-purity um, rhetoric that's being used is very second-wave feminist, and and um, and drawing on, I think in in some cases in very smart ways on, um, notions of religious trauma and religious abuse. Um, but, but for me, like one of the hardest things for me to read is when people are doing what seems to be really good feminist analysis, and then they don't know how to think about race
1: Mm.
2: and racial identity. Because it's intellectually, it's incomplete, but it's also, it also perpetuates a kind of harm, um, and, and reinforces this idea, right, that white women don't have, we don't have to think about our racial identity. Um, and, and this is for me, and this is part of my own thinking in that, um, I mean, my master's degree was on um, whiteness and feminist theology. I had a, I took a course in, um, in seminary called The uh, The Psychology of Whiteness and Feminist Theology that just changed. I was also studying womanist theology and black liberationist theology for the first time. And, And my response to that was to start thinking about white racial identity. Um, and, and so when I, and then when I started working on evangelical purity culture, I, I focused more on adolescent sexuality and, and, and and did a little bit on race, not as much as I, 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 I feel like I I failed in my first book to really address for race appropriately, um, that it needed to be more part of the major through line than it was. Um, Which is why, for this project, I'm really highlighting it and saying and asking the question, how is evangelical purity culture um, a project in white racial dominance?
0: Gotcha. You know, uh, you do so much already with regards to public scholarship, public facing work. you know, straight white American Jesus podcast, uh, writing for the revealer, um, your after purity project, which I will link in the show notes. I'm wondering about your experience so far with the sacred rights cohort that you're a part of and like what you're getting out of it and what you're enjoying about the process of going through these trainings of being a specifically public facing scholar and getting your work out there for the greater public. What are you enjoying about the process so far?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just such a great group of people. And it was so wild because I, you know, I applied, I'd known about, I'd applied many times before I got in and now, and now like the thanks, I'm like, oh yeah, I finally got it. Um, but I knew I was like, well, this is what I'm already doing. And I want to make sure I have all the tools I need to do it as well as I can. Right. Mm-hmm. So that I'm not, you know, um, but I had, and so I had been working with, you know, with Brett on the article. Yeah. Um and then uh and then I was like, "Oh wait, he's a, in charge of this cohort." That's you know. And so but it's been it was he's an amazing editor and it's been delightful to work with him. Susanna I've known um for a couple of years now our, our research you know intersects in a lot of ways and um and it's really interesting cuz I have been wanting it's good to set time aside It's good for me to set time aside to think intentionally about what public scholarship means to me Mm -hmm. and what kinds of, what kind of things I want to offer, right? Because there's, because it's, it's about making a lot of different choices, right? It was easy for me to make the choice that, yes, this needs to be public facing work, right? Right. but that can mean a lot of different things. Um and so uh and so working and so our group right one of the things that I think is just marvelous about sacred rights and I think one of the things that's changing and we're doing a better job at in Um, academia, at least among, within religious studies, is that we bring together people at different stages of their careers, right? So there's graduate students, there's junior scholars, right? We got, you know, we we're celebrating people who just are defending their dissertations, and we have people who've been teaching for 20, 30 years, right? And so seeing, um, And so being able to sort of hear people and like someone did, you know, um, or eat if I may, I don't know if she wants, she may not want me to talk about this, but she's been like, I don't, I don't know how to do this. And then, and then she wrote something really important about um, uh, uh, like some anti-gay stuff at a Jewish university. And she's like, I, you know, I wrote this up and, you know, we were in a small group talking about it. And I was like, this is a really good Twitter thread.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
2: informative, right? It's clear, it's direct. And it's just, it's just giving you information. Like this is, this is it, right? This is public school. And, and and just sort of being able to help people realize, like, you have a contribution to make, right? This is right? This is what I read Twitter for, to read these things, right? Mm-hmm. this is As much as we can say about social media, right? It's still um, helpful for that kind of stuff. And so, uh, so I get excited and I get excited when other people kind of are discovering what they can do and just being like, look, we don't have to be stuck in a world of other academics where all of our energy goes towards are you know monitoring our own ego crises right because that's so much of what it is and so when you're doing public facing work For me, a lot of that goes away. I could imagine everyone has different experiences because I'm like, I'm not worried about people thinking I'm smart or about having to like be so niche in my argumentation. Like, I'm more interested in how do we communicate with clarity, how do we offer people resources for making sense of some of the biggest questions we have right now, Um, and uh, and just helping people. you know, kind of work through like some really, really difficult things, right? Because for me, like when there's, you know, when I'm feeling in crisis over something, whether that's sort of like the end of Roe v. Wade or the pandemic, right? I get I get reassurance when I go to history mm-hmm. <laughs> and I learn about, you know, uh, the, uh, the pandemic of 1918, right? And so on and so forth. So I'm, I hope, I love it when people realize that they can they have something to offer. And um
1: yeah.
0: Well, Dr. Sarah Mossliner, I have loved learning about your work, your fascinating life story, your book Virgin Nation, your recent article, White Women's Bodies and the Dilemma of Purity Culture Recovery from the Revealer. We have covered so much ground. I am so grateful to you for your your time and your energy in this conversation where can people find you if they want to know more about what you do and yeah. uh you know get in touch maybe and follow along yeah.
2: so the best place so i am still pretty active on twitter um and so you can find me at at Maslin or sarah because um, i didn't know how to make a twitter handle <laughs> but I am the After Purity Project on Twitter. Um, the other thing, so I am I am starting to write more on Substack. So you can find me on Subs, the After Purity Project on Substack.
0: Those love are the- Substack. They have a great podcasting platform too over there. Yeah, so that's the best place to go to find me. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure having you today.
2: Thank you.